Hello and welcome to Truth Talks, brought to you by South African author, theologian and church leader, Dr. Christopher Pepler. Welcome to my latest Truth Talk. The topic today is faulty Bible interpretation. You know, hardly a week goes by that I don't come across an example of some sort of faulty Bible interpretation. Now, by this I don't mean interpretation that just differs from mine, but rather an interpretation produced by principles and practices generally regarded as being unsound. But when I say generally regarded, I mean by trained theologians of all persuasions. Sometimes I encounter faulty interpretation in discussing theology or a passage of the Bible with a friend or a fellow church leader. And this just confuses us. Because you know what? It takes quite a while before either of us becomes aware that we are using different methods of interpreting the scriptures in question. Now once we figure this out, the discussion often deviates from the meaning of the subject in question to a dialogue about different ways of interpreting, and we have a, a nice, fine, lively debate about that, which is often very interesting, but it gets us off track. Now, the two categories of faulty Bible interpretation that I come across most frequently are one, hyperliteralism, and two, flawed semantics. Semantics, the meaning of words. Now, the second of these types, semantics, uh, is common with folk who have some but not enough training in interpreting Hebrew and Greek words. I will briefly sketch out the main issues concerning this, but I actually want to focus today on hyperliteralism, because I encounter this more than any other type of faulty Bible interpretation. Okay, briefly, first, flawed semantics. Now, before I define in more detail what semantics means, just a little light-hearted wordplay to highlight the problem. Now, bearing in mind this is just a contrived example. Here it goes. Well, the word semantics comes from the Greek word semenein, which means to show by signs, signify, or point out. That, in turn, derives from the root word sema, which includes in its meaning sign, mark, omen, portent, or constellation. The Greek word for sign used in the New Testament is simeon, which means a token of divine authority and power, as in Matthew 12.38 and John 2.11. Therefore I conclude, the word semantics is the study of miraculous signs. Eh? Well, of course, this is nonsense, because the term semantics actually means determining the meaning of a word, phrase, or text. Now, this little make-believe example is flawed in several ways, and I'm going to just point out two of them. To, to make the point of what really flawed semantics is and, and, and how confusing it can become. Now, firstly, my little example goes to the root origin of the word and then selects just one of its select several meanings. See, I could have just as well have said that semantics is the study of the constellations of the zodiac. I'd be even more wrong. Secondly, it seeks to authenticate this particular understanding by citing just two of several texts where the biblical equivalent of the word is used. Okay, from this rather silly example, we can see that semantics in the hands of an insufficiently qualified person can lead to very faulty Bible interpretation. So that's why I've always recommended 
Now, following order of determining the meaning of a text. 1. What is its context? 2. What did Jesus say or demonstrate concerning it? That's the Christocentric principle. And 3. What does all of the Bible really reveal about its meaning? And that's the exhaustive reference principle. Then, if the meaning is still unclear, only after those three steps, then a word study is warranted. And then it should be a thorough word study coming from proper understanding of how to use the, the particular tools. All right, let's go on to the main problem, which is hyperliteralism. You see, hyperliteralism is far more prevalent among Christians, and it's a lot more problematic, actually, than flawed semantics. And the simplest definition of this phenomenon is as follows. Misinterpreting metaphors and figurative rhetoric as being literal. Now, instead of defining these words like metaphors and figurative rhetoric, let me rather give some examples. Just two. First one. The New King James Version of the Bible translates Acts 7.54 as follows. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. Well, did they really try and bite Stephen? Because that would be the hyper-literalistic way of understanding that. Did they try and bite him? Of course not. This would be a classic example of hyper-literalism in action. Now, many of the folk who indulge in this practice insist that the King James Version is the only authoritative translation of the Bible into English. However, if you take just one other translation, a modern translation, the English Standard Version, that translates Acts 7.54 as, Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. So the Pharisees were so enraged that they clenched their teeth and ground them together. Grrr! Now, the obvious point is that they were very angry. Period. Full stop. Nothing more to be read into it. Second brief example. Acts 20 verse 29. Paul writes that savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Now, clearly, well, to me at least, he did not mean wild animals were going to attack the disciples' flocks of sheep. No, of course not. He was writing about the false prophets and teachers who would enter and damage the congregation after his departure. Now, these are two obvious and rather crass examples, but they actually work out in reality in very similar ways with folk of this particular persuasion. So, it seems so obvious to me, and I confess to almost all reputable Bible scholars, that a metaphor is a figure of speech in which a word or phrase is applied to an object or action to which it is not literally applicable. And it is equally obvious to me that the new King James Version of the Bible is no longer the best translation, because among many other things, it uses archaic words and phrases that are hard to understand and that often no longer mean what they used to mean way back in the day. Now, the examples I've given are contrived and really of no real consequence. But I was reading an extract out of a book the other day. 
which I encountered concerning the blood of Jesus, and it reminded me that sometimes there are very serious theological consequences to hyperliteralism. The author in, in this passage echoed the belief of many Pentecostals that the blood of Jesus in some mystical way constitutes life. In fact, the blood in any creature constitutes the life of that creature. In the case of a human being, this would mean by logical extension that the blood contains the person's spirit, although this is seldom, if ever, stated that boldly. Now this idea comes from a hyper-literal interpretation of Leviticus 17.11, which reads, For the life of the creature is in the blood. Theologically speaking, taking this word, this verse, hyper-literally, would mean that when Paul wrote, we have now been justified by his blood, the blood of Jesus, he wrote that in Romans 5.9, but he meant that Jesus' actual lifeblood saved us. However, we know it was his death on the cross that justified us, not his lifeblood, but his death that justified us. Leon Morris, uh, he's a respected commentator and theologian, wrote the following, Only by a particular interpretation of a few passages can a case be made for thinking that blood means life. And then he goes on and sums up the consensus of theologians from the Church Fathers onwards that, and I quote, references to blood are a vivid way of saying that we owe our salvation to the death of Christ. You see, the life is in the blood of Leviticus is simply a Hebraic way, an old ancient Jewish way, of stating that the total loss of blood signifies death. Now, just imagine the problems we would create for ourselves if we, say, refused a blood transfusion for our dying daughter because her eternal spirit would be replaced by someone else's. Life's in the blood thing. Oh, 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 oh yes. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses uh, teach something like this, don't they? Hmm. Sigh. Well, sometimes hyperliteralism just yields quaint, if irrelevant, interpretation of Scripture. And they have few serious consequences. However, as you can see, sometimes the consequences can be weighty, as is the case of the blood of Jesus' understanding. In either a direct or more subtle way, this has led to some persuasive beliefs and practices in parts of the church. For instance, some people pray to be covered in the blood of Jesus. As protection from evil or sickness or misfortune, they, they plead the blood. However, more serious than this, which is frankly a rather cultic practice, are the teachings that the Lord Jesus' blood only issued from God the Father. Yep, there's a teaching that says that. And that Mary's syntated chromosomes in her blood were absent. There was no Mary's blood in Jesus, they say. Now, follow this logic just a few steps. And if we do, then Jesus Christ appears to be less than fully human. And if this were true, if he was less than fully human, he is an illegitimate representative of all humanity. And if he is not a representative of all humanity, then Jesus did not die for us all.
God have mercy on us. So folks, my appeal, my appeal to all folk with a leaning towards either hyperliteralism or flawed semantics, please, but please would you reconsider the way you interpret scripture and rather adopt the following very simple hermeneutic process, the process of understanding scripture. One, use a modern version of the Bible. Two, start by examining the historical, cultural, literary and biblical context of the text in question. Three, ask and attempt to answer the question, what did Jesus teach, model or indicate concerning this text? And four, ask one other question. Have I considered all the other major biblical evidence concerning this text? And I almost guarantee if we all followed the simple process, and it is a simple process, although time-consuming, we would arrive at maybe slightly differing, but fundamentally sound understandings of Scripture. If you'd like to read a good book on the subject, then uh, there is one, uh, I've read it, it's called Exegetical Fallacies by D.A. Carson. Exegetical Fallacies by D.A. Carson. Uh, this would serve you well. But I've also addressed these issues and many more in my book Truth is the Word. So hop onto my website and buy that. Until next time, God bless you and I pray that God will open up his word to us all as we earnestly and responsibly seek to understand its meaning in our lives and how it reveals Jesus and his wonderful way of salvation. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to Truth Talks from Truth is the Word Ministry. If you'd like to share your views, read up on related topics, or purchase one of Dr. Pepler's books, please visit his blog on truthistheword.com. And remember, Truth Talks.